Hello, and welcome to Disneyversity, the podcast crash course through the history of Disney's animated classics, where we talk about some of the most famous movies ever made that most of us probably don't know nearly as well as we think. Each episode, we'll be moving forward in time through the legendary Disney catalogue, watching every feature film in the Walt Disney Animation Studios vault, from Snow White to Raya and the Last Dragon, seeing how they stand up today, how they pushed the boundaries of animation, shaped the legacy of Walt Disney and the wider Disney brand, and how they influenced pop culture at large. Disclaimer, this is not an official Disney podcast, but all of these films are available to stream now on Disney Plus, so come on, watch along with us, and let's learn together. I'm film journalist Ben Travis, and while I can often be found hanging with the sloths down at the DMV, I'm not your Disneyversity lecturer. No, this week I'm a privileged Parisian housecat who knows nothing of the world outside my window, as we watch through 58 films and counting. Thankfully, we have our very own O'Malley the Alley Cat, the only cat who knows where it's at, as long as it is a vast knowledge of animated movies. I am, of course, talking about Dr. Sam Summers, our guide through one of the most groundbreaking and beloved animated movie catalogues of all time. Sam, how are you? How are you feeling? We're back in business. A new era begins. Obviously, that's very exciting. I'm particularly excited to be Thomas O'Malley this week because <laughs> he's, he's a cool customer, right? One of my, as a kid, one of my Disney heroes, one of the Disney characters I aspired to the most. Just such a cool customer. Yeah, we're entering a new era. That is also very exciting, especially because it seems to be one in which you're a bit less familiar with the films in question. Yeah, it's going to be a bit like the package era again, in that I'm just heading into the unknown for the most part here. I Well, let's get this out of the way. I love the Aristocats. This is one we had on VHS right. growing up. So this is maybe one of the first... Well, obviously, Jungle Book was definitely a favourite of ours, but this is one that really was a massive film for me growing up, and that as I was watching through for the podcast, I hadn't seen it in so, so long, and there were just so many just bits of images or bits of dialogue that are just really deeply embedded. It was like unlocking a new memory or an old memory every couple of seconds. Next episode is going to be Robin Hood, and I know that one too. We had that one. The rest of this era, beyond Robin Hood... I don't think I've seen any of them. I don't know what half of them are. I'm excited, man. It's cool. Yeah, I'm in a similar place with Aristocats. This is one that was on heavy rotation as a kid, and it definitely forms almost like a loose trilogy in many ways with Jungle Book and Robin Hood, which are also in in heavy rotation. And I picked up on those similarities even when I was a kid. So it's going to be interesting picking that out as well over the next couple. And, I mean, officially, this is the Dark Age. That is what our kind of new era that we're heading into now is is called. We had the first five features, we had the Package era, uh, we just had the Bangers era, and now we're in the Dark Age. But in the early part of the Dark Age... We're also in The Bangover. Do you want to explain what that is for anyone who might have missed? <laughs> okay, so these first three movies in the Dark Age, Aristocats, Robin Hood, and Winnie the Pooh, the many adventures of Winnie the Pooh, mind you. Many adventures? How many? Oh, like three. Oh, okay, that's good to know. <laughs> We're calling those The Bangover because 
they do have so much in common with the latter films in the Bangers era, with the latter films of Walt's lifetime. And while it feels very neat to draw a line after The Jungle Book in many ways, because that was the last film that Walt had a significant impact on as a filmmaker, it still feels like we should maybe separate these films off from the rest of the Dark Age because they have so much in common with those films. They're still, I mean, they're not very dark tonally they're still fairly light-hearted movies they've got sherman brothers songs and they're kind of a lot of people see them as bangers as well they're a lot more remembered i think than some of the later films to come in the dark age it's interesting to even think about why we're calling it the dark age i think because that's just sort of what fandom has chosen to call it online it's not as accepted a term in kind of like historian circles or academic circles as something like the golden age or the renaissance or the bangers era that's what all the historians call it (laughs) (laughs) obviously but yeah most of the films in what we'll call the dark age are not just you know when you say dark age it's like the opposite of a renaissance right it's what comes before renaissance it's a period of artistic and cultural stagnation and arguably maybe that's what we've got coming up but also a lot of these films are visually very dark and tonally very dark these next three don't quite tick all of those boxes maybe so the bang over as you said it's still a dark time for the studio this is this is disney without walt and it's kind of fascinating to me we're going to get into this but that aristocats is a pretty fun upbeat adventurous sort of film and that that is what the studio is just like let's just keep on with what we're doing let's just like yes we're in bad times at the moment and our figurehead the person who was leading all of this is gone but let's just carry on with what he maybe would have done himself and and see how far we go but we're getting ahead of ourselves that's enough from us for the moment we're all sat down the register's complete and it's time for class to begin This time, after a jaunt through the jungle with Mowgli and co, we're off to the jazzy streets of Paris in 1970s The Aristocats. As you mentioned, Sam, this is a firm favourite with a lot of people. I had the VHS, you had the VHS. I think this is one that was readily available uh, around our childhood, so lots of people will have seen this one. But for anyone who hasn't, how would you sum up the plot of The Aristocats? So a scheming butler named Edgar takes umbrage when his wealthy employer decides to leave her estate to a cat instead of to him. So he decides to kidnap the cats, catnap the cats, to secure the money for himself, but when he loses them on the outskirts of Paris, they have to team up with the streetwise Thomas O'Malley to get back home, where they eventually send Edgar packing and reunite with their owner. There you go, that's what happens in the Aristocats. It's a fun cat adventure, uh, with a little bit of murderous intent in there as well. But to me, it, it feels like there was like a mix of classic Disney things going on here. It was like 101 Dalmatians meets the jazziness. Well, obviously there's a lot of jazz in that film as well, but coming off the back of the Jungle Book, uh, you mix all those things together and stick it in Paris, And you get the Aristocats, (laughs) occasionally problematic, often quite a lot of fun, maybe not an outright classic, but a a pretty good time. A little bit of Lady and the Tramp in there as well with the the central romantic relationship. Yeah, and even like the time period it's taking place in, obviously Lady and the Tramp was what, like early 1900s, and it feels like this is maybe slightly later, but it feels like, I don't know, mid, early to mid 1900s? It's it's sort of, you could call it a greatest hits, except it's palpably not as great as any of those movies. It's a bit like, <laughs> do you remember there was that label called Kertel that used to get like bands from the 60s to re-record their old songs and put them out on like cheaper greatest hits CDs? 
Is this a thing that you're familiar with? My dad had a few lying around. It's kind of like that. It's like a a slightly worse retread of the greatest hits. (laughs) Which is still, you know, when some of those hits are great, that's still an enjoyable thing. But so as we said before, this is the first film post-Walt. We did a whole study group episode on the death of Walt, so go and listen to that if you've not caught that yet. But so what was the plan after Walt died? I remember in the episode we we discussed that his death took a lot of people by surprise. It wasn't like a big thing everyone knew was coming. So how did they respond and, and how did this film get off the ground? So, I mean, on a corporate level, Disney is very much keeping it within the family. Walt Disney was the figurehead, Roy Disney, his brother, was very heavily involved. So Roy Disney now effectively runs the company as the CEO. Walt's son-in-law, Ron Miller, is in charge of the movie studio. And Roy's son, Roy Jr., also joins the board. And he's going to become a a very important character later on in the Disney story. But we're, we're keeping it in the family and we're also constantly asking ourselves as the animators as the filmmakers what would Walt do and every kind of facet of the company was based around that like the theme parks for example it's what would Walt do let's continue the legacy of Walt Disney as close as possible as to what we believe his intentions would have been so at the animation studio Wooly Ritherman, who directed the last few movies, one of the nine old men, is effectively running the show. He's filling the role of producer and director, so he's the closest thing we've got to a Walt Disney figure in terms of his role at the animation studio, but he's also more hands-on than Walt was. He's actively directing these movies, and he's still flanked by the remaining nine old men those who haven't moved on to kind of the educational side of things, or to theme parks, or to the TV show, etc. So, This is very much kind of a Wooly Ritherman film, and these next few movies will get to look at what a Wooly Ritherman film is separate from a Walt Disney film, right? So maybe it's worth considering as we go through these next few films and maybe comparing them to films like The Jungle Book and The Sword and the Stone as well. What are his directorial signatures, if any. This is interesting, because this might be the first time within this whole podcast so far that uh, maybe across these next few features we can pinpoint a director's voice within these films it's always been a bit of a oh these artists and this voice performance and the sort of waltness underpinning it all but there hasn't really been that singular voice obviously there's still a lot of collaboration going on here but it'll be interesting to see see if especially for me going through these and, and watching some of these things again if that does stand out i have no idea at this stage and that's kind of how the films were being promoted as well at this point like Ritherman himself did quite a bit of promotion for the aristocats did like interviews with publications and stuff which wasn't really something the animators did a whole lot of during walt's lifetime so it's almost like from a marketing point of view, they feel the need to fill that void as well with a figure who can speak for the studio and claim some kind of authorship over these films. So The Jungle Book came out nine months after Walt died. He was working on that for a while. That's why we sort of still counted it as being within his lifetime. Was there any crossover at all with the Aristocats? Was there any indication of this one having any roots while Walt was still alive? Or was this purely a post-Walt creation? Walt very much does have his fingerprints on this still in several ways. So he did sign off on the production of the Aristocats as an animated film before he died. 
and he also was involved in the development of what was to become the story for the Aristocats, which went through various different phases in various different forms during his lifetime as well. Okay, that's interesting. Uh, what was the origin of this story? Because I think this might be a rare Disney movie, especially at this stage, that wasn't based on a pre-existing story. We've had very few of those so far. And I think maybe one of the ones we had was Lady and the Tramp, and it was just like, hey, this animator has a couple of dogs that are cute. <laughs> Let's do something with that. So what about the Aristocats? Did somebody just have a, like, a cool jazz cat and they were like, is this a thing? So this is, yeah, more or less an original story. And it's Genesis is kind of closest to something like Lady and the Tramp, where it is, as it says in the credits, based on a story by Tom McGowan and Tom Rowe. But these two guys were people who developed that story for Disney just in a different form. So it was originally developed to be a couple of episodes on Disney's Wonderful World of Colour, which at that time was the name of the Disney TV show. And and that show had a whole lot of episodes based around what if animals did things? What if a seal came to live in a town or whatever, right? Things like that. Is that a real one? I want yeah, to watch no, that. That's that sounds real. great. That's called Sammy the Way Out Seal and it's on Disney Plus and it is class. <laughs> so the producer of these things was a guy called Harry Title and Walt told Harry Title to ask this other guy called Tom McGowan who directed some of the episodes. He directed The Hound That Thought He Was a Raccoon. Um, <laughs> he directed Sancho the Homing Steer colon Sancho on the Rancho. Okay, so amazing. <laughs> this guy knows what he's doing. He knows his way around an animal story. So Harry Title, the producer, asked this guy, the director, to come up with a new story about animals for the show that they could do in live action. So Tom McGowan gets in touch with Tom Rowe, who is an American writer living in France, to write this script. So those are the two guys credited as developing the story in the opening titles of the Aristocats. But this script did go under a lot of revisions at the hands of Walt Disney, who wasn't entirely happy with it. And eventually Walt came to the conclusion that it would work better in animation, which is obviously true. (laughs) Completely true. Yeah, well, it's mad to me that they were ever going to do this in live-action form. I mean, I know they were doing lots of, like, live-action animal stuff and just kind of putting narratives onto live-action nature footage and that kind of thing, but... The Aristocat, how would they have done the jazz stuff? Yeah, they wouldn't have had them playing trumpets. <laughs> you wouldn't <laughs> have to think. You would have to think that wasn't part of it. And how much was riding on this one? Because The Jungle Book was a really big success, but it's not actually that long since there'd been calls to shut down animation altogether. I think that was Roy's thing. Roy Disney's thing was like, we're losing money on animation. I'm the money guy. I say no more animation. And then sort of Walt and was the person who kind of kept that going. So was there any worry at this stage of just like, hey, maybe we just stop animation altogether? Yeah, so some of the newer executives were pushing for the animation studio to close after Walt's death because Walt was the main proponent of animation and even he was kind of faced with the fact on multiple occasions that it might not be the money spinner that it once was or if it ever was because these movies have been very hit and miss commercially all the way through the history of the company. A guy called Card Walker is often credited with being the main force behind pushing for the studio to close if you want someone with a slightly sinister name to blame this all on. What was that, Card Walker? That Card sounds made Walker. Up. Sounds more made up than Harry Title. <laughs> <laughs> I'm picturing Card Walker with like a big kind of Texan cowboy hat on and maybe an eye patch and like a white tuxedo. <laughs> That's Card Walker. What is Card short for? 
cardamom. Maybe it's not short for anything. Maybe it was, his parents just looked at him and thought, he looks like a card. So this may have been a do-or-die situation for Ritherman and the animators. If this was a big failure, quite possibly it would have led to the shuttering of the studio. Man, that is a lot of pressure. Not only do you not have waltz, but the axe is swinging over your head if the uh, Jazz Cat movie doesn't come off as well as you hoped. Oh, man. Well, should we dive into it? Should we see for ourselves if this was a successful post-Walt Disney movie? Let's. I think it's interesting that in this post-Walt Disney movie... It's sort of business as usual, right? You watch the Aristocats, and if you didn't know the history of things, you might not really realise anything has changed. We're in the same aspect ratio, we have the same slightly Xeroxy, scratchy look of the last few movies. It's a sort of jazzy animal movie in the vein of stuff that we've had quite recently. But it just feels like a nice, solid example of what we've had. I really liked the opening sequence to this one, in that you see the sort of line drawings of the cats, you see bits of the animation in an unfinished form in the credit sequence. Maybe this is Wooly Ritherman's input as somebody who comes from the animation side of it, going, hey, let's highlight the work of the animation guys. Yeah, it's really foregrounding that Xerox process as well, which is now being firmly entrenched at the studio. It's the outlines of the characters, they're not filled in. It's the outlines of the characters Xeroxed onto this kind of wavy psychedelic background, which is quite cool as well. This is like the first psychedelic Disney film post the actual psychedelia movement, right? Because like Dumbo, Caballeros, and especially Alice almost prefigure that psychedelic hippie aesthetic. And this is kind of Disney almost reminding us how much they might have had to do with the development of that style. It is cool, but I did write down in my notes, it looks like the frosted glass from the back of Yunnan's house. <laughs> it's it's a choice, you know, it's an aesthetic choice, but I liked it. It's colourful, it's kind of trippy and weird, and yeah, the 70s, man, Disney can dig it, etc. Is that cool? <laughs> In those credits, there's a couple of familiar names that came up that I was pretty excited to see. Phil Harris, for one, uh, Baloo from The Jungle Book. Uh, Scatman Crothers! I had never clocked that Scatman Crothers lends his voice to this as well. Where do you know Scatman Crothers from? The Shining. The Shining! He's Dick Halloran in The Shining. So, uh, yeah, that name jumped out on me straight away. I mainly know Crothers from animation because he is also Hong Kong Fooey. And he is Jazz, one of the best Transformers. Oh, that is pretty cool. You're a big Transformers guy. One day we'll start Transformiversity, whatever you want to call (laughs) it. We'll watch all 300 episodes of the original Transformers series, or however many they are. Disneyversity, War for Cybertron, Series 2, coming your way. There are all sorts of things. I grew up on this movie, right? And it was funny re-watching it, because... I really held on to a lot of things, but also massive things about it just completely went over my head as a kid. I never realised this was set in Paris. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe that says a lot about the movie's depiction of Paris. Yeah, I mean, it's it's vague and sketchy as best, but in that opening sequence, you get a big shot of the Eiffel Tower right there. And it, and it comes up at the beginning saying Paris 1910. I mean, I was watching this when I was maybe three, four years old, so I wouldn't have taken that in. But I think that partly ties into all the accent stuff, because when we meet our characters, right... Adelaide, the owner of the cats, and Duchess and the kittens. We've got a whole range of accents in true Disney style. Half of them have sort of British cut glass accents, especially the female characters. And then the scrappy lads have like working class American accents because they're scrappy lads. 
as a kid, I just never would have taken in. Oh, it's set in Paris. That's why there's accordion all over the soundtrack. I guess Duchess has a vaguely French accent and she's sort of our central character. Eva Gabor, the actress, is Hungarian, I believe. So perhaps that's a Hungarian accent. I wouldn't be quite sure, but it has a French quality to it. Yeah, it's a little bit of an edge to it, you know, a little bit of a French edge, but no, it's not that strong. I am going to forget the names of the little kittens all the way through this. Oh, I'm not. But the little girl, Marie, that's it. Yeah. She is like super posh British accent. That is her. Yeah, she's in, in the vein of like your Wendy's and your Alice's, your Catherine Beaumont characters from back in the day. And I mean, what this opening of the film does is just establishes you in Adelaide's house, in the life of these cats. It feels very Lady and the Tramp to me, uh, in just sort of having this big posh house that this very loved animal lives in and getting to know the rhythms and sort of status quo in this house that is pretty quickly going to change. So you've got Adelaide... You've got Georges, this kind of old fella with a cane, who something that really jumped out to me was his his little song is Carabombier. I was obsessed with that as a kid. I loved it. The thing that went over my head, as well as the fact that this is set in Paris, is that this is about the butler, Edgar, trying to kill Adelaide and bump off the cats so that he can have the inheritance. Well, not bump off the cats. He drives them out of town. Because when he starts enacting his plan, I was like... Is he going to be a cat murderer? Is that what this is about? Um, but that whole the whole plot of this film went over my head as a kid. Do you think he's going to murder the madame? Is, is that what you is that what you think he's up to? Oh yeah, definitely. Oh, because... I don't think he's got it in him. He's soft as clarts. People don't know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, it's very evocative, though. I I can imagine what soft as I can imagine clarts being very soft. <laughs> no, I think. We're going to get on to Edgar in a minute, but I think Edgar's an interesting villain because I think he's kind of evil but bumbling. I think he has the will but not the capability. But if he doesn't bump off Adelaide as well as the cats, it might be a long time before he gets that inheritance. I think it just clicks when he overhears the meeting between Adelaide and Georges where they're discussing the will and how everything's going to go to the cats. I think I think he just snaps in that moment, man. I think that's it. I mean, I would argue that Adelaide is incredibly old and probably not long for this world but we'll quickly find out that edgar's not necessarily thinking with precise logic in a lot of ways (laughs) with regards to this plan so maybe he didn't consider that before we get on to edgar properly let's talk a little bit more about our family of cats we have a nice introduction to the sort of very artsy life that these cats lead down the line we're going to meet some outright like musically gifted jazz cats but here already what the cats and what the kittens are doing is art i love that bit of toulouse painting with his paws again i loved that as a kid the um the sort of feeling of the paint as he's kind of slopping it on the canvas and then you also have the kids singing songs and playing the piano together well do you know where the names come from so what we've got toulouse marie Buios, berlioz berlioz what's that from so Berlioz plays piano. He's named after the French composer Hector Berlioz. And Toulouse is an artist, so he's named after Henri Toulouse-Lautrec, who you will know oh. from being played by John Leguizamo in Moulin Rouge. Yes. Uh, what about Marie? Uh, I think Marie Antoinette. I think in versions of the script, okay. she's called Marie Antoinette because she's going to get beheaded. I don't really know why that is. <laughs> oh, God. Edgar's plan comes to fruition. The thing that struck me about this sequence with the kittens... 
The song that they sing and play around the piano, was that supposed to be a parody of The Sound of Music? It, it had a real, like, do-re-mi feel mm, to it. I can see that, possibly. And it's a similar kind of thing, like we're teaching the kids how to sing. That's a Sherman Brothers song, by the way, as was the opening song. Both great, but not the standout tracks from the film, I wouldn't say. No, obviously there's a big song towards the end that just steals the show in the musical department. I think even the Sherman Brothers stuff that's not as good as their very best stuff, there's still just a warmth and familiarity to that feeling that they bring in those songs. It's like a lovely musical blanket. Yeah, I think they are, in this film, even though they did write other songs for other scenes which were deleted or replaced, the Sherman brothers are being deployed to do what they do best, and other songwriters are being brought in to author the songs that require a different kind of tone to them. Yeah, I'm not sure they would have been the best people to do the big jazzy song at the end, but it's just nice to have them in the mix here, and I I think there'll be a decent amount of Sherman Brothers stuff down the line as well as we continue going through. Yeah, a couple of bits and bobs. So if the opening of the film is primarily about bedding us in with the cats and getting the ball rolling on Edgar's motivations to be a villain, let's talk for a bit about Edgar himself. So my feeling on this is, we've come out of an era, the Bangers era, with so many iconic villains, right, who are just pure evil for the sake of being evil. Maleficent, Cruella, they're just bad people and that's kind of why they're they're really fun. Whereas for me, Edgar, he's not quite an iconic villain for me, I don't think, but he has this like chaotic energy to him where he doesn't have the efficiency of a Maleficent or a Cruella. He's just a dude who wants his money and is willing to do bad things to make it happen, but he's just a bit inept at it. Yeah, he's relatable, right? Because one, this is what I would be like if I tried to enact an evil plan. (laughs) (laughs) Not great at it, stumbling over a lot, really kind of running afoul of of some dogs. All of this would, would happen to me. But also, in a way, he is in the right here. Yeah, it's completely absurd that she would leave all that money to cats. You always see new stories about, oh, such and such idiot, rich buffoon has left all of the money to the cats, probably inspired by the Aristocat. I hate those people. <laughs> Eat the rich. I'm very pro-Edgar from, like, a motivational standpoint, right? The cats, you don't kidnap the cats. I mean, that's unnecessary. Any sane person would wait for it to die. It's not going to be long and then raise the cats. Someone has to raise the cats. This I don't think this is an original observation. If he just waited things out, he would be the caretaker for the cats. Cats don't live very long either. <laughs> he gets the money. There's a bit where he's like doing maths, and he's like basing all of the maths on the fact that cats have nine lives. He's a complete doofus, right? The plan makes no sense. <laughs> but the motivations are completely justifiable. It sounds like we have an Edgar in our midst here, I have to say. (laughs) I'm worried you're going to bump me off (laughs) if I don't put you in my will as the custodian of all things Disneyversity in any unfortunate circumstances. Yeah, it is insane that she's going to leave all the money to the cats. She is a rich woman. Surely as well, if she left it all to the cats, then somebody would just step in and be like, this is mad. Somebody has to... Cats can't own money. No. Can cats legally own money? I mean, I don't know, but he would be the legal custodian for the cats. Who else is it going to be? George? He's not long for this world either. Okay? He is <laughs> arguably going before Adelaide, <laughs> let's be honest. He's going to fall down those stairs one day. He's barely clinging onto them at this point, so... Anyway... Not the soundest logician than Edgar, but 
a fun performance, I think. A guy that I do enjoy watching to a degree. Um, performance from Roddy Maud Roxby. He's always like tripping over his lines and he's got this like comedy overcross British accent. That's good. Yeah, and his plan that he doesn't act. Again, as a kid, it went over my head what he was actually doing. But that, that creme de la creme a la Edgar that he made always looked pretty decent. I would look at that and be like. That looks pretty tasty. It looks delicious. I mean, we were talking to the Ghibliotech boys in the last episode, and Ghibli are well known for their beautiful looking scenes of food. I think that Disney, for some reason, especially in the Xerox era, have loads of beautiful, really appetizing looking plates of food. And creme de la creme de la Edgar, despite being milk <laughs> with sleeping pills in it, looks really <laughs> delicious. I would be out like a light if you put me anywhere near a bowl of creme de la creme a la Edgar. <laughs> And then, I don't know, I'd drive you out into the middle of nowhere and you'd have to find your way home. This is basically the cat's version of The Hangover. (laughs) Also, he puts enough pills in that creme de la creme to kill a human, right? Let alone a cat. Like, See? He's going for Adelaide. This is my thing. He's not just going for the cats, I'm telling you. Well, the cats should not have survived that. I know it's a cartoon, but... (laughs) I feel like, in fact, what I thought was interesting is that you don't even see the cats drink the milk. You see mm. the effects of it through, I'm going to call him Roquefort, because that is how you'd say it here. The, the little mouse in the film they call Roquefort. Uh, <laughs> Roque, I, think, I think they even say Roquefort. They put the T in there. Roquefort. I can't abide that, so I'm just going to call him Roquefort. And yeah, we see Roquefort have a teeny tiny bit of the milk of the creme de la creme de la Edgar, and that is him gone. He's out. And you don't actually see the cats or the kittens drinking it. One moment that's happening, the next, Edgar is driving them out into the middle of nowhere. So yeah, as much as he's evil, his plan isn't, as far as we know, to kill the cats, but just to knock them out, take them so far out of town that they'll never find their way home. And then we get into something that felt very 101 Dalmatians to me, right? Which is that you have a really great animal antics main plot, And then you just go off to this, like, farm in the middle of nowhere that you don't really want to be at, that you don't enjoy spending much time at. Like, every time in 101 Dalmatians they go to the goose in the barn, I was like, take me back to the puppies. And every time you go back to the dogs in the barn here and the Edgar antics, there's there's some fun cartoony stuff. Like, I think Edgar is a very cartoony villain because they're playing him as bumbling, as inept, that they get to do a lot of cool, like, cartoony antics with him. I think these are pretty good antics. When the dogs are driving the motorbike and the sidecar splits off and Edgar's flying away on an umbrella and the dog's kind of chomping up and down on Edgar's leg, it's fun and it's funny, but all through that time, I just wanted to be back with the cats. Yeah, this antic, I guess, this shenanigan, this really long sequence of the dogs chasing (laughs) Edgar around a farm. It comes at a time in the movie where it's just about to kick into gear. We're waiting for the next step along the road of this adventure. We've just kind of really activated the plot as these dogs enter the scene, and it just drags, man. It feels like a long time since an antic has stopped a film in its tracks as severely as it does here. Like, maybe we're talking back with the mice in Cinderella for the last example as egregious as this. At least this doesn't open the film, because the mice in Cinderella, that was like the first 20 minutes of the film, really. Whereas this, you have your grounding with the cats, you're invested already, and then you go off. I I do think it's a really fun and impressive sequence, to be fair, but you're right, it is long, and it's a long time to be away from our main characters, because at this point, he's dropped the cats off already, but it's sending up the fact, or setting up the fact, 
that Edgar is going to leave evidence at the scene that he's just crap at all of this stuff. He's not good at being a villain and he's going to have to go back to try and sort all of this stuff out later. Which, again, then when we go back and there are more antics at the farm later on in the film, I was like, come on, man, enough with the Edgar stuff. The thing that I will point out, though, that really came across in the sort of second Edgar sequence, but that I do think applies throughout a lot of the film, is that there's such a lovely sense of texture to the Aristocats. I think partly that comes down to the Xerox process, which obviously we've seen in other films, but there's just moments where when Edgar's trying to get his hat back from Napoleon the dog, and he's having to scratch Napoleon's back in order to kind of get the hat off his head, and he's hiding in a hay bale, and the hay has a real texture. Everything about the scratching and the hay and everything has a really lovely sort of tangible feel to it, I think. Yeah, I think that's what makes some of the food and the milk in this so appealing as well. And it's also, like, that's what gives the London of 101 Dalmatians such a a real kind of tactile and grimy uh, feel to it as well. And you get a little bit of that with the Paris in this film, not as much as I would like, but there's definitely a lot of positives to the Xerox process, a lot of really appealing traits that it brings to the animation that you don't get from the more polished, fully inked cell animation of the golden age do you have a favorite bit of edgar antics i think for me it's in that first edgar sequence with the dogs where he drives his motorbike in a full one i don't even know what you'd call it he does like a full spin on the underside of that bridge i love that for me my standout from these scenes if i have one is sorry i've been too harsh it's just (laughs) the the second scene the second edgar versus dog scene was Mm. supposedly added because the first one did so well in screenings. It was like, we need more of this, and I just cannot abide that. But there are some quite good lines. I quite like the dogs as characters. Napoleon, in particular, has a great voice provided by a guy called Pat Buttram, who we're going to meet quite often, actually, in the Dark Age. Pat Butcher? Pat from from the Queen Vic? (laughs) Pat Buttram from the sitcom Green Acres. And he's going to come back quite a lot in the Dark Age films. And he gets some great lines in. This is Napoleon. My favourite being, as Edgar is, on his bike, completely covered in hair, he goes, You're never going to believe this. It's a one-wheel haystack. <laughs> That's a really great line. <laughs> that is a good line. I, I appreciated that one. I like that. But speaking of great characters with great voice performances, let's get on to the main man himself. O'Malley oh. the Alley Cat. Just steals this film right it's not just me i mean it's the phil harris blue effect again this guy comes in with this amazing voice performance just this like cool laid-back character who just comes in and is just like oh this is the guy i want to see on screen so so good and i mean there are a lot of complaints in reviews and stuff that this is just blue again and a bit like there was with blue that this is just the character of Phil Harris, the persona of Phil Harris, which obviously we're not as familiar with these days. I don't care, man. Give me all (laughs) of the Phil Harris action you have got. He is just such a smooth dude, man. I love Thomas O'Malley. I loved him so much as a kid. That song that he sings is so just chilled out, man. when, When Thomas O'Malley said... The world is my backyard. I just felt that so hard as a kid, man. I was like, wow, what if the world was my backyard? That's incredible. (laughs) What a life that would be. It means that he's homeless, but, you know, I I love the idea. (laughs) He's like Tramp and Baloo 
in one character, mm, isn't he? What a but killer he, combination. It is a real cat thing as well, just to be like, Do you know what, I own the world, this is my world, I can go anywhere, you all just live in it. Um, so I think there is an element of character there, but yeah, the crossover with Baloo here is undeniable. One of the lines I wrote down is, uh, that's pure O'Malley, baby, right off the cuff. <laughs> and it's like, it's, that's pure O'Malley, but that is pure Phil Harris as well. That's just I had him. that line written down as well. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think in every sense this character has so much presence on the one hand he is a chunky boy he is a very large cat the sense of scale in this film occasionally ran into that live action cats moment for me where it's like how big are these cats supposed to be and how big is the world around them he is the size of like a small panther i'm pretty sure um but he's he's a big chunky guy and He's got so much presence and charisma. And when he first sees all the cats and kittens who have been dropped off by the river, they wake up and they're like, where the hell, what's going on? Quickly work out that Edgar dropped them off. And straight away, O'Malley is like flirting with Duchess. He's like raining petals on her, singing his song. He's such a smooth mover. I mean, like Phil Harris, let's not understate the fact that Phil Harris in Baloo, Thomas O'Malley and Little John in Robin Hood He's just bringing us really smooth, cool, charismatic, sexy, larger gentlemen, and that, <laughs> right, we shouldn't. That shouldn't be underappreciated. It's, it's it is representation of a kind. I think that's sweet. He's such a lad as well. That moment when he's like been schmoozing with Duchess, and then he realizes that she has three kids, and he's like, "Oh no." <laughs> It's like, oh, he's just a bad man, but like a cool man. You could watch it all day. You could watch it all day, and it's lovely seeing the kittens sort of immediately take on those mannerisms, like Bulios. I'm going to pronounce that wrong. Bulios, we'll go with that. Immediately takes on the O'Malley strut after that encounter. I appreciated, though it felt like there was like a, a foreshadowing of Aladdin here when O'Malley's schmoozing Duchess and he's like, oh, we'll fly to Paris on a magic carpet. That struck me that, yeah, in just over 20 years' time, we'll get Aladdin, we'll get our schmoozing on magic carpets. But over the course of the film, O'Malley, well, it's that classic thing, isn't it? He sort of softens a bit, he warms to the kids, he helps them on their journey has that change of heart. I mean, he's helping them the whole time, but you get the sense at the beginning, especially when he struts in, that he's just lad about town, he just wants a piece of Duchess, whereas by the end, he gets a bit of family, he gets a bit of heart to him. You know, not a million miles away from Han Solo. I wouldn't be surprised if he was an influence right. on Han Solo, to be <laughs> honest, because he, he even gets that moment where he kind of... I guess it's for slightly different reasons than Han Solo, but he, he leaves them behind at the end, and then he has to be convinced to have that change of heart and run back and save them. Sort of Han Solo. Yeah, you can imagine Duchess saying, I love you, and O'Malley saying, I know. <laughs> I know, baby. That's pure O'Malley. I, like, what? I can get why people complained when we've had, like, what's going to be three films on the trot with basically the same guy playing basically the same character. It's pure Harris exploitation, and I love it. Like, looking back on these movies, he's easily the best thing about all of them. In terms of the plot, his role, as well as just being a fun character for these other cats to interact with, is that he's going to help them get back to Paris. Uh, but we see a headline, right, in a newspaper, um, explaining the fact that these cats have been catnapped. Mysterious catnapper abducts family of cats. That threw me out of the film, Sam. Is that really headline news in a big capital city newspaper? She's a very wealthy lady. 
She is. I think she's she's meant to be like an old opera diva or something. Like she's probably famous right. in her own right. Not that her name was mentioned in the headline, I suppose. So that, that maybe throws that theory out the window. That said, one of the biggest news stories this year: Lady Gaga's dog walker. Well, I mean, partly as well because he was shot and the dogs were taken. They got the dogs back, and he's okay. But that's been a big ongoing news story. So who knows? Maybe the TMZ of its day would have been like, "This opera singer's lost her cats. Stop the press. Front page. Here we go." Just before we go on to talk about some of the other animals in the film, I felt like a key point of O'Malley's kind of growth over this movie, he does a lot of saving of the kittens, right? That's the thing. He He's kind of there along the ride, but he's just picking up the kittens every time they get into danger. I love the sequence where they're crossing the train tracks and the little kittens are pretending to be the train. Super cute. But Marie falls in the water and O'Malley immediately gets his heroic moment. He jumps in to save her. It feels like, on the one hand, their journey home is pretty short, right? It cuts over most of the journey in a way that's slightly strange. But it peppers what you do get with a couple of other interactions that allow O'Malley to have his hero moment, allows him to have that bond with the kittens, and allows them to obviously grow an attachment to him as well, this sort of protective father figure who's also just a cool dude, that is is just going to hopefully make a nice family unit by the end of the film. But as much as this film is called The Aristocats, it's not just about the cats here. There are various other critters. We've already mentioned Rockfor. I loved Rockfor. I thought he was a cute little guy. I loved his sort of pure black eyes. He had, it again, a slightly like cartoonish feel to him, a different look and feel to a lot of the other characters in the film. Also, Basil the Great Mouse Detective is a thing that I know is happening in the near future from where we are in the Disney catalogue. Here we get a little mouse in a deer stalker. That can't be coincidental, can it? I, well, I mean, I think, yes, it is. But it's, it's still a very interesting, a very interesting bit of sort of meta foreshadowing there. Yeah, a mouse dressed as Sherlock Holmes. What a crazy idea. But this guy is such a good boy. Sterling Holloway, by the way. Shouts out yes. to Sterling Holloway. He was the Mad Hatter, wasn't he? No. No, he, he, was, he was in Alice Edwin in Wonderland. was the Mad Hatter. Edwin. Sterling Holloway was... The Cheshire Cat, Sterling Holloway was the stalking Dumbo, he was Car, he was a whole bunch of roles in all these movies, and he's still not done the best of Holloway as yet to come, I promise you that. He's just such a good boy, he's straight out to help the cats. Zero hesitation, he's straight out there in his little outfit to try and track them down when he finds out they've gone missing. He's so polite when he's like hanging around, hanging around the bowl of creme de la creme, and he's got his little cracker. He's got, he's got to dip his little cracker in there. He's just like, oh, if you don't mind, I would love just a little spot of milk. It's, it's that is a good impression, man. That was great. <laughs> Thank you. Never tried Sterling before, and I, I'm not going to try again. You did, may I say, a sterling job. Way. Uh, so I'm really glad we're both on the same page with Rock Four, but. There is a character in this who, as soon as I saw it, I was like, Sam is going to be obsessed with this guy. This is going to be, it's like, build a lizard. Uh, who was the horse from Mr. Toad that you're obsessed with? Cyril Proud. Cyril the horse. There's a new weird character that Sam's going to love. Um, we're going to get to the other geese in a minute, but Uncle Waldo, the weird drunk goose in Paris. Please <laughs> confirm my suspicions that you're obsessed with Uncle Waldo. Uncle Waldo! What <laughs> I think that guy. tells me everything amazing oh my god so uncle waldo is just the traveling with some british geese who've helped them out along the way and they say oh we're going we're going to paris and we're going to meet up with uncle waldo and everyone's just like 
Oh, okay. And then Uncle Waldo <laughs> turns up. He's just escaped from a kitchen. He's being basted in white wine. And we're getting the great line from Thomas. Basted? He's being marinated in it. <laughs> because Those two Waldo together is just a dynamite combination. He's absolutely mortal. Like, oh my God, wouldn't you love to see that movie? <laughs> he's, he's, in the movie for like, he's in the movie for like a minute. <laughs> So I've just got other lines written down. Go, no, do like, it. Oh, Go for it. You've been basil in wine. <laughs> and Uncle Waldo says, being British, I would have preferred sherry. And then he goes, sherry! Sherry? <laughs> <laughs> He's just an oddball. He's just like a weird like <laughs> character. I, I can pinpoint these laughing. as soon as they come just on Just thinking about them. What's he there for? He plays no purpose. And then he walks away and Thomas O'Malley just basically looks at the screen and says, you know something? I like Uncle Waldo. <laughs> it's like, yeah, me too. Uh, this was the final role of a guy called Bill Thompson, who has a long list of voice credits. He was the White Rabbit. He was Smee. He was Jock and Lee and the Tramp. And he was Droopy in, in the Tex Avery MGM cartoons as well. But this is... What a role to go out on. And in fact, I kind of really want to introduce something here. A little semi-feature. I want to introduce the idea of Disneyversity Legends because... So you know about Disney Legends, right? Like Disney have this thing called Disney Legends and it's a big long list of people who've made a big contribution to Disney in their lifetime and there's like a ceremony every year where they get inducted. And I think we need Disney Versity Legends, sort of a hall of fame for these lesser known oddball characters that I'm so deeply obsessed with. Well, I'm fully down for that, but you know what this means. We need some kind of alarm. The Nine Old Man of the Week alarm is done. What other vocal signal can you give us? Maybe still an alarm, but it could just be like a... Like a siren, maybe? Could do that, or may- maybe a bit of a fanfare. Oh, like... Okay, okay, okay. Disneyversity legends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like this. <laughs> okay, so As I think... pure summers, baby, right <laughs> off the cuff. <laughs> so... Inaugural lineup of Disney Versity Legends. I think Bill the Lizard's got to be in there. Mm-hmm. Oh, are we talking the characters, not the voice no, actors? No, we're talking the characters. Okay. We're talking the characters. Yeah. I mean, obviously, the voice actors play a huge part in it, but it's it's a consummate performance, right? <laughs> With the animators yeah. as well. Inaugural class, Cyril Proudbottom, he's got to be in there. Bill the Lizard, he's got to be in there. Cosplay Owl from Sleeping Beauty. Oh, 100%. Okay. And then, I don't know, I've got I've got a couple of others I could maybe throw in there. I don't know. I'm, I love Willy the Whale. I love Little Toot. But <laughs> I think they're both in. They're like obscure random characters who you have a, an unusually large attachment to. <laughs> okay, they're in there. And then, latest edition, Uncle Waldo. To be honest, like I feel like Rock 4, I feel like George. Maybe could be contenders, but then we're getting into more than one per movie, which seems like a bit much. I feel like Rock 4 is too wholesome for the Disney Versity Legends okay. canon. There's something, like, sleazy about Uncle Waldo that's just, like, <laughs> adds to the whole... Like, he's just a boozed-up goose on the town. Okay, Uncle Waldo's in there. He's the Aristocats entry. It's not going to happen every week. It's not going to happen every episode. We can't just decide that there's going to be a Disney legend for a movie that perhaps hasn't earned it, right? But every so often, you're going to hear the Disney Versity legend fanfare and we're going to inaugurate someone into the Hall of Fame. And I'm excited, as with Uncle Waldo, to see if I can spot it a mile off that this is going to be <laughs> a new Disney Versity legend. Just before we move on, let's very quickly talk about the other geese, Abigail and Amelia, because they have their own kind of set piece. They bring their own vibe to the film. These two kind of posh geese who 
waddle onto the scene and help O'Malley and the kittens. I loved this sequence as a kid, especially the song that comes with it, the waddling mm. song. The Perfect. That is embedded from like 27 years of memories. That moment when they come in and they're bickering with each other. I don't know why those characters are there, but they're pretty fun, right? And something else that's cool about these gals, Amelia and Abigail Gabble, for that is their names, and they're played by Monica Evans and Carol Shelley, who are a bit of a double act, so they played sisters in the Odd Couple show, and they are going to return as sort of a double act in Robin Hood as well, so I think it's cool when we get little nods to the real-life careers of some of the actors. Interesting. Anyway, the geese and O'Malley and all of that lot basically means that our cats get back to Paris, but before they go back to Adelaide's house, they go to O'Malley's apartment, right? And that brings us to a scene that I'm really torn on, because on the one hand, I love the sequence that we get with the jazz cats in the band, but at the same time, it's full of very problematic, outdated cultural depictions stuff. So I felt really torn on this as I was re-watching it because we meet Scat Cat and his gang. Scat Cat is the cat voiced by Scatman Crothers, who I thought was a really cool dude. And you have this amazing, really energetic sequence where the film just comes to life for a few minutes as they're playing the song that defines this film. Everybody wants to be a cat because a cat's the only cat who knows where it's at. But there's a lot of pretty dodgy stuff in here too. I mean, so we're primarily talking about the other members of Scat Cat's band, right? Who are all... Like, the the premise of this is that each member of the band is a different ethnic stereotype. So we've got... I've got the names. We've got Hit Cat, who is based on sort of like an English hippie character. We've got Peppo, who is like an, I guess, Italian stereotype. We've got Big Billy Boss, who is Russian. Uh, so those guys... I would say less harmful. Yeah, right? not great, but not not the worst. Also, some pretty cool character names in there. Let's be oh, honest. Yeah. Bit, what, what, Billy Big Balls, who was that? <laughs> Billy, Billy Big, Big Bo- Billy Boss. Big Billy Boss. Yeah, voiced by Thurl Ravenscroft, who played Tony the Tiger. So there you've gone. Then we come to the character I've seen named Shun Gon. On the poster for the movie, though, when the name, they've got various characters, like, oh, here's Rockford and here's Napoleon and Lafayette, it's, he's just called Oriental Cat. And I thought it was interesting that he's the only member of the Alley Cats who's given his own little spot on the poster, and it says, Oriental Cat, the leader of a band of tuneful Tomcats, which is deeply odd to me, because he's not the leader. Obviously, anyone who's seen the movie, Scat Cat is the leader of the band. This almost says to me, this is troubling because it's like trying to sell the movie based on look at this really funny Chinese caricature that we've got in this thing, right? That's how that reads to me. It, it, giving them such prominence on the poster, such undeserved prominence on the poster, it's like, oh yeah, this is going to be funny. Everyone's going to love Oriental Cat. And so the most controversial moment in the entire film, is in the bridge of Everybody Wants to Be a Cat, it turns into this big jam session, which I love. I love the idea of that, that everyone's just here jamming out, like Duchess gets a little go on the harp, the kids are joining in. And Shun Gon plays... He's holding chopsticks, playing that on the piano, and he just sings these lyrics which are just a hodgepodge of gibberish Asian stereotypes. And it's so out of nowhere, and it's so gratuitous, and it just kills this scene for any contemporary viewer. 
Yeah, totally. And there's that moment as well where he, he puts a symbol on his head and it makes a, a gong sound and stuff. And it's like, a thing that stood out to me, like you said, it just feels so unnecessary. It comes out of nowhere. I think there's always going to be stuff, especially at this era of, as we've spoken about in the past, the way they depict jazz, that it's like away from the sort of safe white neighborhood you go into this sort of seedy neighborhood where these kind of slightly dodgy characters it's a signifier of of all of that and and i mean that is very much the case here i think that comes back into play later in the film when uh, rock four has to go to scat cat and his gang to try and get some uh, reinforcements basically for the final reel and it's him well partly it's him because he's a, a mouse and they're all cats but it's him heading into the dark and dangerous part of town to try and get some backup but i think in this sequence in particular it's purely that asian stereotype cat is just there's no need for it to be there i appreciate what they do in terms of just giving you the heads up at the beginning and not trying to erase that stuff saying look this is part of the history and it's wrong but it is such a bummer when it kills this scene that is otherwise just an explosion of light and energy and fun like that shot of them playing the piano and it's crashing through every floor of the house it's just a fun and infectious thing but yeah you have various stereotypes at play in this but especially that asian stereotype was particularly egregious yeah so in the original scene it is similarly to how we see jazz deployed in the jungle book it is utilizing those cd unsavory connotations that go all the way back through the history of jazz and the history of jazz in animation but this is a much more unambiguously like celebratory scene than the one in the jungle book where those characters are almost villainous they are a threat here it's literally showing characters playing jazz which i think is is significant as well it's this band jamming out it's celebrating that music and the people who make that music and i think that's why it wouldn't be impossible to put a positive spin on the fact that we're shown an ethnically diverse, you know, were some of the depictions not so offensive, we are shown an ethnically diverse group of characters, and it's a reference to the origins of jazz music from obviously black culture in particular, but also, you know, moving through melting pot cities like Paris over the early years of its history and being contributed to by people from all different ethnic backgrounds. And there's almost something positive to that. And I think the later scene in which they are much more threatening characters towards Roquefort, obviously because they're cats and he's a mouse and that's very much played up in that scene, that takes them back to the more ambiguous characters like the monkeys in the Jungle Book who have associations with jazz. But, you know... It is still the most memorable song in the film. The version that I had on CD when I was a kid, which I'm assuming is also on streaming services, removes Shun Gon's contribution to the bridge. So if you want to enjoy it, maybe that's the place to start. If you want to just enjoy this great song. Also worth pointing out that this was written by Terry Gilkeyson, who wrote The Bare Necessities before having all of his work for The Jungle Book scrapped apart from that song. So I think it's cool that he's got to come back and write another absolute banger. Yeah, that guy knows his way around an amazing Disney tune. What a back-to-back set of bangers there. That's amazing. But that sequence kind of spins us off into the final reel of the film. It all comes to a head, and it's everyone. It's a showdown against Edgar. I love when O'Malley sees Duchess's street for the first time. We get another classic O'Malley line where he says, dig these fancy wigwams. <laughs> Look at all the massive houses. Amazing. But Edgar, upon seeing the cats return, not the cat returns, shout out to Ghibliotech, decides to package them up and send them off to Timbuktu, and it ends up with a big scrap. O'Malley fights back. Rockfall's in the mix. He's trying to pick the lock on the chest. Uh, I love that moment where he's like, quiet, so he can pick the lock. He's just a cool little dude. I love him. 
And it wraps up in a, a fun sort of cartoony way in that the horse, we haven't mentioned the horse, Sam. What do you reckon of, of, of this horse? <laughs> yeah, she's good. She's good. She's second tier Disney horse, but that's fair. She's, she's a cool self-possessed lady, I think. She gets the like action moment of the final reel because she's the one who kicks Edgar into the trunk. Uh, and in fact, it's Edgar who shipped off to Timbuktu instead of the kittens. Do you think that Edgar is threatening in this sequence, which because this is where the movie really needs him to be a threat, right? Not massively, not in a Cruella Deville sort of way. I think that ineptitude adds an element of like franticness to this final reel, where it's like he's got bad intent, but he's scrappy. So you know that there is possible danger, but also you're not there thinking, oh, this guy's got his head together. He knows what he's doing. Oh no. But I think it's still a pretty fun closing sequence. It's like not the best Disney finale we've had, but I think it's still a pretty fun, kind of very cartoony sequence, maybe more cartoony than what we've seen in the last couple of Disney movies. Yeah, he gets his arse handed to him, really, doesn't he? <laughs> <laughs> but he, you know, he's like waving a pitchfork around and you get the sense he is he's going to ship the kittens off to Timbuktu, but he, he's going to kill O'Malley if he has to, to get there. But he never pulls off scary, does he? Which... You could argue you need, although maybe it just it's fine, it's just a bit of a comic set piece. Oh, apart from the fact that I feel like we need Edgar to be a much worse guy if we are to enjoy him getting sent off to Timbuktu on the other side of the world in a suitcase, because that is nightmarish, right? <laughs> that is one of the worst things that's happened to a Disney villain so far. And yet, at the same time, it goes right back to Snow White, right? The, the Wicked Witch tries to kill the dwarfs and does herself in, and... In this case, Edgar is hoist by his own petard, it's his own plan is turned against him. I thought that was quite a nice way of wrapping up his story, where his sort of fate is the one that he tried to inflict on someone else, and instead it comes back around on him. That is true, but in the case of Snow White, and in many other Disney films, what we have is the villain is very literally, or, or kind of maybe an act of God or the villain's own hand is very literally the, the cause of their own demise in order to alleviate the blame on the hero, right? The, the dwarfs are ultimately not responsible in any way for the, the witch's death in Snow White. In the Aristocats, they deliberately put them in that box, right? The, the horse, the horse is the one. She kicks them right into that box. She knows what she's doing. She knows that guy is in for a rough ride at Timbuktu. Maybe not such a second-tier horse after all, Sam, eh? But there we have it. Edgar's off to Timbuktu, and O'Malley is welcomed into the family. Adelaide is a fan of O'Malley. How do you feel about them combing his hair down? That felt a bit like, I don't know how long O'Malley's going to last in this situation with with his collar, with his new haircut. Uh, you can't tame a wild stallion, baby. <laughs> I mean, it's Lady and the Tramp again, isn't it? They've domesticated <laughs> O'Malley in the same way as they've domesticated Tramp, which is, if you want to put a little bit of a political spin on it, that's like the Disney wholesome, family-friendly machine homogenizing these characters, saying that, oh no, this is deviant, this kind of lifestyle, that's kind of not really what you want to be doing, you know, sleeping around, as I think it's implied that both O'Malley and the Tramp do, and, you know, being interested in things like jazz music and these slightly outsider cultural forms. No, you're going to be integrated back in a typical suburban middle-class society. Oh, except for the fact that she's got the jazz band living in the house, actually. Yeah, they move in. I mean, this woman is mad, right? <laughs> At first she's going to leave her entire estate to the cats, and now she's like, do you know what? All the stray cats of Paris can just come and live with me, but it's great because we get another little blast of jazz at the end of the film. Yeah, your move, Paul O'Grady. <laughs> 
That brings us to the section of the show we call Discarded, where ordinarily we would look back at the original tale that the filmmakers drew from and, and dig up the weird stuff that they left behind. But this is an original story, so we don't have an original tale to draw from. But I imagine, Sam, there was still stuff that hit the cutting room floor. Yeah, so both in its original iteration as a potential live-action story and in the process of finishing the animated film, a few things were left out. The biggest seems to be that there was originally going to be two evil servants, and there was going to be a maid called Elvira, who has a bit of a crush on Edgar. Now, for me, the coolest thing about this, and the reason why I wish that would have seen this film, is that both as a live-action version and in animation, there was a possibility that these guys were going to be played by Boris Karloff as Edgar and Elsa Lancaster as the maid, which would be a Bride of Frankenstein reunion, which is one of my favourite films of all time, and, and, and that's the monster and his mate from Bride of Frankenstein. That would have been cool to see that in a Disney movie. kind of wish that had happened. It would have been a weird mashup, I think, to have that kind of horror throwback element in The Aristocats? Yeah, I mean, Boris Karloff was no stranger to, like, camp, but you would think that would be a more threatening version of Edgar than what we eventually got. So... One of the things that Walt was trying to push on the film, which did end up kind of falling by the wayside after he died, was he wanted more of an emotional through line, and he wanted there to be a storyline involving Duchess trying to get her kittens adopted by owners who were suitable to their talents. And I think that's why we get so much emphasis at the start of, like, Omarie's a singer, and Berlioz is a piano player, and Toulouse is a painter, because he was going to try and match them up with like, oh, so Marie's going to get adopted by a singer and Toulouse is going to get adopted by a painter and Berlioz by a pianist, you see? So it was going to... little neat there. <laughs> and eventually she was going to have to say goodbye. Oh, that is interesting. Yeah, because they give them... It's nice that you still get distinct personalities and creative things that these little cats are involved in, but it does make sense that that was setting up for something that never really paid off, that never really happened. Yeah, and you would have ended up with a little bit of a Toy Story 3 moment almost of the, the mother having to say goodbye as well. I mean, already this film is a classic Disney, like, 80 minutes, bang, done. But the amount of extra time you would have needed for that would have made this quite a long Disney movie, I think. And I think also Ryderman's trying to move... So this is one of the things where we can say, oh, this is something that ties Ryderman's films together. He's trying to move away from emotion towards just, like, cool, funny characters. So there was a couple of Sherman Brothers songs that were removed from the film that elaborate on the relationship between Duchess and Adelaide, her owner. So there was going to be a song early on and then a song about halfway through when she's telling O'Malley why she needs to return to her owner. Uh, and we'll get a little bit of that sequence where she's imagining the madame being lonely in a, in a big old home on her own. And there was going to be songs for those moments to tug on your heartstrings a bit there. But I think Ryderman just wasn't really interested in your heartstrings. What he was interested in is cutting down the budget. So we've got no recycled animation in this film which we have seen in The Jungle Book and which we will see a lot of in Robin Hood. But O'Malley originally had Stripes, for example, which, as we learned with the Dalmatians and with Shere Khan, can be a bit of a nightmare. And there were going to be action scenes. There was going to be one in a sewer and one in a wine cellar, and they were both cut because liquid is harder to animate. Do you know what would have saved on the budget? Only having one 10-minute dog antics sequence in the film, <laughs> but instead, no, they wanted two. That's what the people want. It was demanded. <laughs> 
Well, speaking of what the people wanted, let's talk about the reception of the film. What did critics say about the Aristocats at the time? Were they on board with it? Yeah, muted, but kind of positive. A lot of them really loved The Jungle Book, and I think the fact that it was the first film released after Walt's death and that it was very much being spun as something he had a lot of personal involvement in did aid with the reception of that film. It's something that was brought up a lot. This being put out there as the first post-Walt film, with Reitherman almost being more the face of the operation this time, means that people were less effusive about it, but still overall positive. So we've got the New York Times saying that it's grand fun all the way, nicely flavoured with tunes, and topped off with one of the funniest jam sessions ever by a bunch of scraggly bohemians. So that's quite cool, quite positive, picks up on that everybody wants to be a cat sequence as a highlight. Times say that the melodies in Disney's earlier efforts have been richer, but for integration of music, comedy and plot, the Aristocats has no rivals. Okay, debatable, maybe. (laughs) Um, The LA Times says that it has a good-natured charm, but it lacks a certain kind of vigour, boldness and dash, a kind of hard-focused emphasis, which you would say was a Disney trademark. So there's an example of someone really saying, oh, this is what Walt was good at, and this evidently doesn't have it. Interesting, interesting. Well, we'll come to our thoughts in a minute. I have to say, I think mine kind of echo that, but we'll put a pin in that for now. What about general audiences? Was this a box office hit? Did it reach the giddy heights of Jungle Book? Was that that anticipation, that feverish sort of what is the post Walt Disney Disney movie? Or, 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 yeah, how did this one fare? So it did make quite a lot of money, actually. So again, we're talking about this as the Dark Age, and people get this sense of like an immediate artistic and economic downturn, and that wasn't really the case. So it grossed $10 million in North America. It grossed $16 million in France, okay? It was the biggest movie of the year in France, so it kind of worked, the idea of setting it in France. Apparently it was a hit with those audiences, even though arguably it doesn't have as much of a French flavour as it could. Not as much as Ratatouille will have in Pixar several decades down the line. No, definitely not. So its worldwide total was fairly high at 21 million. 10 million domestically, 21 million overseas. That's down from the Jungle Book, but that was 13 million domestic, 24 million worldwide. So not that much lower. Not that much of a drop at all. When you think of the Jungle Book as being this huge, beloved, all-time favourite, as I said, I think a lot of people love the Aristocats. I think especially people who grew up with it on VHS have a lot of affection for it. But I don't think it's thought of in the same way as the Jungle Book. So interesting that at the time, it didn't make that much less. Yeah, it has had that drop-off in terms of people's general estimations, I think. But yeah, it was it was a big enough hit that the studio was saved. So if you were on tenterhooks, rest assured <laughs> that there will be more episodes of Disneyversity. Phew, Disneyversity does not end here. Okay, so what about our thoughts? I've already teased mine, so you go first. Yeah, I like it. Like I say, it is a nostalgic one for me that I had a lot of fun with, but it, it doesn't come off well, I think, in comparison to it, especially The Jungle Book, with which it has so much in common. I mean, so if we're talking about one of Ryderman's trademarks as a director, so many of his movies are episodic in nature. We've definitely seen that with Jungle Book and with Sword in the Stone, and you definitely see that with Aristocats. But I think those individual episodes aren't quite as memorable or as strong as they are in The Jungle Book, while certainly outclassing those in Sword in the Stone. And and in Aristocats, elements of it, like, for example, Marie falling off the bridge and needing to be rescued, that initiate these episodes, and of course everything with the dogs, oh no, I've left my hat behind, feels kind of (laughs) contrived, right? (laughs) Yeah, it's kittens falling off things and needing to be rescued, and bumbling Edgar 
leaving a trail of destruction and having to sort it out wherever he goes. Yeah, as opposed to the jungle boot, which has a more natural flow to it with Mowgli wandering through the jungle. Visually as well, step down, I think. Like we've said, there are some advantages to the Xerox process in terms of the tactility of the images, but I think the compositing of the cells with the backgrounds isn't as good here, and you often get this quite floaty effect where the two don't seem to be really married. Like, I think I really noticed this when the whenever the geese are walking off into the distance where the background is just kind of static as the geese, like, float towards it. If you watch those sequences back, I think you'll see what I mean. So, yeah. Yeah, a bit of a step down in that sense as well. But look, it's it's nowhere near the worst we've had so far. It's a solid three stars, I think. I'm going to go very slightly higher and go three and a half. In that I think this film has so much of what we love about Disney. It has so many classic Disney elements. Just not quite as good as it's been done elsewhere. And the one sequence that is really stand out, the Jazz Cat sequence has the sort of pretty awful stereotype stuff in it that just adds an edge to that, where it's you just want to be able to purely enjoy it, and you can't. But you could have forgiven the studio, right, for just absolutely stacking it after Walt's death, of just going like, oh, what are we doing? And putting out something that's really subpar. And I don't think they did that. I think this feels really of a piece with the films that we've seen recently. Like, there's a reason this is the bangover. We're in the Dark Age, but... I don't think we're fully in the Dark Age yet, especially in terms of the quality of the film. I think it's generally really enjoyable. It's got fun songs, it's got cool characters, it has some really playful sequences. I just don't think it's quite up there with some of the other stuff that we've seen. And yeah, the two dog sequences, I didn't need all of that. And I think they do slow the film down. I very much felt that 101 Dalmatians factor of like, why are we off at the barn again? But I enjoyed it, and I love this one from my childhood, and look, that's always going to factor into these ratings. These are not objective ratings by any means. So for me, three and a half stars for the Aristocats. Now it's time for the part of the show we call Lasting Legacy, because a Disney movie is never just a Disney movie. In the world of straight-to-DVD sequels, theme parks, live-action remakes, crossover movies and more, there's a whole universe out there for each character. So Sam, what is the lasting legacy of the Aristocats? Is there much extraneous Aristocats material in the world? There's a little bit. What there is, is a lot of cancelled Aristocats material. So for example, like with Dumbo 2, there was going to be an Aristocats 2. The the, the planned sequel that was cancelled after John Lasseter and the Pixar boys came in and said you know, we're not doing this anymore, this is kind of detrimental to our legacy. Would it have been called The Arist Two Cats? Oh, it should have been, Ben, it should have been. I don't know if I had a subtitle, actually. Let's call it Aristocats 2 Death on the Nile, because it's basically a Poirot-style <laughs> mystery, right? So it's focused on Marie. I think all the Aristocats are on this boat. They all go on a cruise, and Marie is, is who's really the protagonist, because Marie is the breakout character of this movie, as we'll see in some of our other Last and Legacy material. Um, she has to take down a jewel thief on a luxury cruise ship, and they also give her a, a love interest. It was planned to be CGI, God help us. It would have been the first CGI direct-to-video sequel, I oh, think. No. It sounds terrible. And apparently a group of six artists were given five weeks to storyboard the whole thing from scratch, which is absurd. And it shows the kind of environment that these sequels were being produced in and the kind of budget and deadlines that were on and maybe explains why so many of them were so poor. The only other comment I have to make is that since this film, the first one, was set in 1910 and we're going on a cruise 
or on, on a large ocean liner of some kind. This could easily have been the Titanic, which launched in 1912. Can you imagine? Just after the original, it could have been the Aristocats on the Titanic. The world would not have been ready for that crossover. Do you know what I want to see? I want to see the Uncle Waldo solving crimes movie. Like, <laughs> with O'Malley. The, with, with O'Malley. Like a boozed up goose trying to solve a crime is just a wild... Make it a series, make it a a, a series of films, whatever. I will watch it. So another cancelled project is Aristocats, the animated series, which was to come out in the early 2000s, that focused on the kittens as teenagers with really, like, off-putting, sort of more anthropomorphic designs. I'll probably tweet out the concept art from that. It's Again, it's a thing that I'm glad did not happen. But... As I've touched on, Marie is the real breakout star, right? Did you, did you know that? Were you aware of that, of Marie's popularity? Not at all. No, uh, not the character that stood out to me, but I can see in a maybe in a like Tinkerbell sense of just like, let's appeal primarily to, to the kids, to the girls with this kind of very feminine, cute little white cat. Yeah, so she is she is cute, she's adorable, that's what it's about. I guess she's got kind of a cool personality, like she's a little bit kind of snotty and spoilt and cheeky, and yeah, I guess she's kind of almost like a miniature Miss Piggy kind of character. So for a long time she was the only character to have a walk around in the park, someone you could go and meet in the parks, which are obviously very light on Aristocast material. Well, even in Disneyland Paris, did they not capitalise on that? Well, in 2018, they had a Disney Loves Jazz event where they brought a few more Aristocats characters out, including a very half arsed uh, character of Edgar who just looks like a man in a waistcoat. <laughs> <laughs> There's videos of him on YouTube. He's, he's got quite good patter, but he doesn't look much like Edgar, I must say. So... Marie has, like, books about her, like, picture books. She's got so much merchandise, so many plushes. I found on the internet a picture of a a bag for life that they made to tie in with the movie Ralph Breaks the Internet in, like, supermarkets. And it's got Vanellope from the Wreck-It Ralph movies riding on the back of, like, a flying Marie who's got, like, a rainbow coming out from behind her and she's shooting lasers out of her eyes. That sounds incredible. I'm shocked that you don't own this bag already. (laughs) We'll try and acquire it. So, Marie, huge star all over the world, but especially in Japan. And I think we mentioned on the Ghibliotech episode, we're interested in how the Disney movies are received in Japan. And here's one answer to that question. They love Marie. In Tokyo Disney, February the 2nd, every year, that's Marie Day. And everything's about Marie. What? That's a thing? Yeah, so you go on Marie Day, you buy some exclusive Marie merch, you get your picture taken with Marie. But the greatest spin-off of the Aristocats, one of the greatest lasting legacy spin-offs we've encountered so far, is the manga. Okay? The Japanese manga based around the character of Marie. Oh my god, there's a Marie manga? What the hell? Yep, so this is called Miria and Marie. And it's about a kind of poor little rich girl called Maria living in Japan, okay? And she's bored of her life, all right? She's sick of it. She's like, oh, it's so boring just being rich and maybe she's got no friends or something, I don't know. It's not very clear. And one day, Marie, the cat from Aristocats, magically appears from out of her phone, okay? Marie pops out of her phone as if by magic and Marie says to Maria, 
you are a witch, Maria. Pulling a Hagrid. <laughs> uh, this is getting into Kiki's delivery service territory. What, you've got a young teenage witch with a cat who talks to her. So if you're following, Maria's told Maria, she's come out of her phone, she says you're a witch. But you need to train, okay, before you can access the full extent of your magic powers. So I'm going to take you back in time to Paris circa 1910, where I will train you as a witch. <laughs> Yeah. So they're basically, it's set in the present day, and then they're like, we're going to go back to the era of the actual Aristocats. Yeah, we're going to go back to the era of Aristocats. If you think that means that some of our other favourite characters from Aristocats are going to pop up, you would be dead wrong, sir. This is (laughs) Marie-centric only. And, okay, so I haven't bought this. I don't own this. I probably will because it's amazing. But you can, it's one of those on Amazon, it's got the preview, so you can look at, like, the first eight or so pages of this thing, right? And all of the information I've just given you takes place in, like, the first six pages of of Marie and Marie, right? It it wastes no time establishing this premise. I don't really know what happens next, but I can give you some of the chapter titles. Okay, we've got um, A Wheel of a Time. Yeah, Possible Willy crossover. Possible Willy. Possible monstro appearance. Yeah, some kind of wheel encounter going to take place. Uh... The little lady goes to space. Here for it. It's, it's no less mad than going back to 1910's Paris to learn magic. So, and finally, Bastille Day, in which I guess Maria is going to learn all about the French Revolution, which is information she could use because something else we'll find out very early on is that Maria doesn't know what Paris is. Uh, what, like the concept of Paris? Yeah, Marie's like, I'm going to take you back in time to Paris, and and Maria's like. What's Paris? And Marie's like, oh, it's this big city in France. <laughs> it still exists in the present day, come on. She's got a long way to go before she gets to Bastille Day. I feel like there's the existence of France itself needs to be established before we learn about Bastille Day. Well, that is incredible. I fully expect you to have read this entire manga by the time we do our next recording. Maybe we'll do a special on it down the line, who knows? And that is it for this week's class. Join us again for next week's seminar as we venture into the mythical tale of my hometown, Nottingham, whistling our way through anti-capitalist adventures in Robin Hood. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you fancy dropping us a little review, we'll thank you by signing you up to our very own Alley Cats Foundation, where there's always a swinging party to be found. But for now... It's goodbye from Sam. Au revoir. And it's goodbye from me. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, I'm the leader. I'll say that it's the end. The end. Disneyversity is brought to you by Ben Travis and Sam Summers. Our artwork is by Ollie Gibbs and our music is by Nefetz. Follow us at Disneyversity on Twitter and Instagram and catch you for next week's class. Thank you.